sitting here today, the amount of success, if you want to call it that, that I've had, if this is like the peak of what I will ever achieve, like I will still continue reporting and writing because I just like doing it. It's the place in the world where I feel like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Every podcast has an opening song. This is ours. It's not very long. Chase, I think our opening song needs to be a little bit longer. I'm singing more of our opening song to intro our show called Behind Two Blondes. Hi everyone, my name's Chase O'Donnell. And I'm Savannah Brown. Together we started a comedy duo called Two Blondes. Every week Savannah and I interview a successful 20-something who is pursuing their passion in an attempt to pick up some pointers of our own and hopefully inspire you to get out there and do the same. Today we are interviewing Rosie Spinks. Rosie is a freelance journalist whose work has appeared online and in print in publications including Vice, The Guardian, Quartz, Fusion, NPR, The Pool, Marie Claire, The Wall Street Journal, and the list goes on and on and on. She also recently did a TED Talks where she spoke about being a mouthy woman, which we will um, hear about in our interview, I'm sure. Oh my god, we are so happy to talk to her today and see what her journey's been like. Before we hop into our interview, I don't know if you know this or not, but we love to eat brunch and we love to interview our guest over brunch. So Savannah, what's on the brunch menu today? Spinach and two cheese focaccia pizzas with apple focaccia pizzas with apple and maple roasted squash salad. Yum. Yum is right. Really delicious. That is all thanks to Blue Apron, who is the sponsor of our amazing podcast is that cocky that's a calling cocky. our podcast amazing. amazing anyway thank you blue apron so much for sponsoring us um it would help out our show a ton if you went to blueapron.com slash two blondes spelled t-o-o and by doing that you will get three free meals shipped to you on us on us please go and do that you're welcome i'm not making sense Thank you so much for brunching with us. Hi, Rosie. Thank you. We're brunching, Hi. but it's really seven at night. <laughs> <laughs> we have some drinks here, and um, they may or may not contain alcohol. Mine is a, what is it called? Mimosa. Mimosa. I keep wanting to say Merlot. I'm drinking a, a mimosa. <laughs> Me too. Rosie, what are you drinking? Well, to be honest, I was just drinking a cup of tea and <gasps> contemplating a beer to follow that, which I was yes. gonna, which I was gonna have after this interview. So I'm kind of empty-handed right now, but, but it, I will be drinking tea. a beer when it's over. What kind of tea? Yeah. Um, just British tea. Just I feel classic. like just you saying tea and then a beer is so British of you, which <laughs> I don't think we mentioned. Rosie lives in London, and which like, part of London? Yeah. I live in in East London in a in a the borough of Hackney, which okay. is a bit like I've been to which Hackney. is basically like the Brooklyn of um, of London, if it's you will. It's very hip. It is very hip. Yeah. I've been to Hackney. My husband lives in North London. Oh lived. wow! Not lived. anymore. Oh sorry. Now he moved here for me. So you're in London full time. Yes, I am. My parents are um, British, so I have British passport, and that's <gasps> initially. I mean, that's pretty much why I initially went. Um, and then that's just kind of where my life is now. Did you just see yeah. more writing opportunities in London? Is that why you kind of... 
Um, well, what happened was I, I had studied abroad in university and um, I was already writing in university like for the student newspaper. And I just, I was in Cape Town in 2010 and it was an, an amazing semester. And I just really liked the experience of not living in America, to mm -hmm. be honest. And not to, not because I was like hating on America, though there's plenty of room for that these days, but <laughs> more because I, I just liked not ha like coasting through life on a kind of default setting where, where everything's sort of familiar and you know how everything works. And like writing wise, that was really interesting to me, even as a student. So then when I finished university, I knew that I wanted to write. And so instead of moving to New York to become a writer, I was like, oh, I'll move to London because I have a British passport and that would be more interesting. Okay, so you graduate college, you move to a country <laughs> that like, yes, you have a passport, but really you don't know anyone. Yeah. Maybe some family members, but yeah. you, you totally just picked up and moved. What was that like, and did you have a job lined up, or you just went and were like, I'm going to be a waitress yeah. until I get a job? Like, what was your journey? So I I was very fortunate and am still very fortunate. I do have family there. So my initial sort of landing was with my relatives, but I did not have a job. I also did not have, an, you know, anyone who's going to pay my rent and I didn't obviously didn't want to stay with my family indefinitely mm -hmm. so I did get a waitressing job uh, that was my first I literally like walked around central London with resumes and then walked into this restaurant and this girl from my high school was working there because no <laughs> she was a also a dual citizen and and she got me a job there so that was my first job it was really awful it was eight pounds an hour I was a restaurant hostess but at the same time I was I was an intern at a magazine so it had been okay. my, it was my third it was my third magazine internship and when I interviewed I sort of said you know I really only want to do this if I can write that that's what I'm interested in so you know is there a way we could do this where I like do the intern stuff for a month and then the rest of the time I just get to write stories and they basically they said, okay, let's try it and what? see how it goes for a month. And then wow. that's, they let me do that. So it was really bizarre. I was like, I was like, uh, you know, interviewing environmental lawyers and people during the day um, working for this magazine and then like going to be a hostess for a restaurant in the evening and living in like the shittiest flat of all time. But you were, you were doing it yourself because you couldn't just go live at home with your parents or... Like yeah. Well, and also like I think, I think that kind of, uh, that kind of situation is almost necessary because you don't. It's like really uncomfortable. You don't want to be doing it. You don't. I was literally like sharing a room with people. Like it was insane. It was like living in a hostel. Well, London's and, like New York in the sense that <laughs> it's so expensive, and you need yeah. To, like yeah. It was like. So you don't, you want to be like doing better. It makes you work really hard. It makes you hungry and like work on the weekends so that you can, you know, make stuff happen. And that's definitely, that's definitely like how it felt at that time and still kind of feels these yeah. days to be honest. Now you say university, you say flat, you're using all the terms that British people use. I'm, <laughs> I'm noticing yeah. and I've started to say them. That's why I'm noticing it. You've been I'm there how long? Uh, I moved in 2011. Okay, so you've been there a chunk of time. But, like, also my parents are British, so some of the... So it's really confusing. Sometimes I don't actually know, 
like what word I'm supposed to say. Um, <laughs> that's me now. But so I mean, confused. stuff like university, like that's just the path of least resistance. Because if you say college in the UK, it actually means something different. It does. 100%. So you 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 have to. What's I it mean? mean? It means like it means like when you like leave high levels. school early and you sort of go to almost like a A levels, right? Which are like yeah. in between college and high school. Okay. Yeah. It, we don't have an equivalent because in in the so UK weird. you can leave school at 16 or you can go finish till 18. Oh. And do GCSEs. So so yeah. It's, so you say it's, university because that's really yeah, no but it's one of those weird things. Like you work really hard when you move to another. I mean, England's you know still English, so it's much much easier. But you work hard to like make all these uh, cognitive changes. You know, you think in Celsius and you talk in meters or whatever, and then you come home and you don't really want to like, give up all this hard cognitive work you've done to remember to say Hoover instead of vacuum. And and then people are like, oh, so now you say mobile and petrol. Like you're like right. you're in that. You're like no, like I actually just I actually just say that now because that that's, that's it's just... easier for me in my life to speak the way that people around me. <laughs> my husband know? will argue. He's like it just doesn't make as much sense, and I kind of have to agree. So I've been starting <laughs> to just use his terms because they make sense to me. And if we argue about it he'll win so I just, just yeah. did you find it hard in your writing because things are spelled differently color um, there's different yeah. like did you have I to mean, really adjust still, to that it's still hard because I write for both UK and US publications so I think my spell checker right now is on British but it changes like uh -huh. Um, I, the, that first internship I had, I had this really mean editor and she was like, I was like the first day and it was me and like two dudes, both of which went to Oxford. And she was like, she was like, if you give me a draft with American spellings, I won't read it. So obviously she was not talking to the two guys that just graduated from Oxford. like the best university in the country. So she was directly <laughs> talking to me. So it's like this, this insinuation that like American spellings are stupid, which I mean, British people do actually think that. So, um, so yeah, it is. It, it is. I. It is annoying, but it's also kind of a joy of mine to find these really, really like subtle differences between UK and US English. I. I it's like a hobby of mine. Mm -hmm. If you follow me on Twitter, I'm always tweeting them. They're the craziest, randomest things. Like, persnickety and pernickety are the same meaning but one country I can't remember which one uses an s and the other country doesn't things like that well I think America uses persnickety right yeah and Britain uses pernickety pernickety and my husband will always say well they created the English language yeah which I can't they say really, that about everything I can't really argue though they're pernickety yeah. <laughs> your Twitter you mentioned your Twitter I do follow you and I do follow huh. your blog and get your newsletter which you're is, like a super fan chase i'm a super, super fan, fan of your newsletter <laughs> i look for it in my inbox every month it is the best I newsletter. So i gotta get on this newsletter how can people get on who's okay so the newsletter is at tinyletter.com slash rojo sphinx thank you so rjo r-o-j-o-s-p-i-n-k-s and every month, Rosie just uh, gives, like, a rundown of how her month went, like, something that's, like, on her mind, and then shares publications she's written, publications she's read, things that, like, word soup quotes that she likes. Like, <laughs> uh, it's the most beautiful 
thing. And that's what's gotten me so into following your journey. And I'd oh, love you to so talk kind. even more about you got this job as the waitress and an internship, but when did you go into full-time being a journalist? What was yes. that process like? So, I mean, that process was long and is still evolving, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, it, it was a good sort of, I'm trying to think. By the time I finished that internship, I had sort of started freelancing. Um, and I had learned that, you know, being an American in, in a different country was an asset because I could pitch mm -hmm. stories to American editors that perhaps other 21-year-old, 22-year-old writers didn't have access to. So it kind of gave me, like, you know, when the Olympics happened or there were got riots it. in London the first summer I lived there, I wrote that, I think that was the first story I got paid for. So, you know, that I sort of saw that as a kind of opportunity. Yeah. And then for like two years, I'd say, I really, my life was kind of just like a patchwork of things I was doing to earn money and then things I was doing to, um, to sort of, you know, further my writing career. And sometimes those things intersect, you know, like I wrote about a Brazilian guy I met in a, another restaurant I worked in in London who had like three jobs and that became a story about like I can't even remember what something about the service uh, industry in the UK and and blah 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 so it, it's one of those things that like young people overlook is that especially writers I think often um, you know what you're doing if you want to be a writer you can't sit on your laptop all day like you have to go do stuff so That's sometimes paying the bills is like a good place to find stuff to write about um, which was definitely the case for me and then I was a personal assistant for an author for about a year and a half and I that was like part-time so I was writing and freelancing a lot while doing that and when that came to an end I sort of had enough work um, to be fr full-time freelance and that ultimately what that meant was that like I could work from anywhere I wanted. So I didn't even have to be in London necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but that didn't mean that I earned all my money from writing journalistic articles. Like I, I still do write for other people. You know, I will copy edit or I'll proofread or I'll ghostwrite or copywriting, oh, yeah. all kinds of stuff. So that's something that most freelance writers do to some extent not a lot I think a lot of, not a lot of them talk about it I think more of them should because it's definitely a reality of um you know making a living this way so that that so I'd say it was like two to three years before I felt from the time I moved to the UK before I actually felt like I could totally embody the label of I'm a freelance writer or journalist. Now, this ghostwriting thing is so intriguing to me lately, and I don't know why. I just don't think I had thought about it. You write an yeah. article and you get no credit for it. How is that? Well, there's all, I mean, there's all kinds of ways it can work. Um, yeah, like sometimes people, sometimes it's just like you're writing content for maybe a website and you don't even want your name on it because it's not, they've given you the brief and, and you're not, you know, it's not something Enjoy. that like, yeah, or it's just like, you're just like a workhorse for them. Um, but more traditional ghostwriting is like when someone wants a book Like Hillary and Clinton and you write a book yeah. for her that's a biography or yeah, autobiography. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except usually with high profile people, now they like acknowledge the ghostwriter a little bit more. But that's just an example of, of something that um, can help. Yeah. To, uh, also yeah. while you're doing the journal. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's, 
it's that kind of stuff is good because it's more reliable in terms of when you get paid um, and it can allow you to do work that you maybe are not going to get paid as much for but you really want to do and that's something that I think people who want to go into a creative field like they don't really get that like they think that everything you're going to be doing is or they, they think that in order for it to be legitimate there has to be total overlap with the money and the thing that they want to be doing mm-hmm. but I think if you ask most people that's actually not the case like some of the stories that I've worked the hardest on and that I'm the most proud of if I were to break down hourly how much I got paid and you know for how much time I spent on it it would be like sad and pathetic it would be like you can't <laughs> you know. even look at it <laughs> yeah but but it doesn't matter because when you really when you really want to write that story you don't think about that you mm-hmm. just make it work and mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. really been the truth or that's really been how I've made it work is kind of separating the really separating the creative endeavors from the way that I pay my bills and though I pay my bills all through writing now it's not all writing that I care about I guess my next question is were you like actively pursuing people and saying hi I want to write for you or were you just writing articles and then pitching it to people or were people just coming to you how is how is the process of getting hired Um, it's a little bit of everything, but in the beginning, it's just like absolutely relentless perseverance and you get just like endless rejection and you just keep going. (laughs) And I mean, I, you still, I still get lots of rejection, but I sort of know enough now to know like why I'm getting rejected or just like, I just let it roll off my back more. Mm -hmm. It definitely took. Yeah. So in the beginning, basically you take whatever clips you have. So I had pretty good clips by the time I finished university because I'd interned at other magazines. I'd written a lot for the paper. I'd written for the local paper where I, like the town paper where I went to university. So you start there and and, um, they don't care where you went to university. They don't care. I literally have never even been asked if I finished university. Like Mm -hmm. nobody cares. All they care about is like what you write in the last few things you've written. And where have you been published? yeah, that's all they care about. So at the beginning, it's really hard because you've been published places that nobody's heard of, especially when you move from like Santa Cruz, California, from Santa Cruz, California to London. I mean, literally people in London don't even know what the University of California is. They're like, oh, you went to Stanford? It's like, no, no. I went to the University well, of California. we can say that. Stanford. Uh, it's sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then, but then I think what's, what's actually uh, the what a lot of people don't understand is it's less about obviously you need to be a a competent writer but what people actually care about when you're pitching or what your ideas are um and what like you know what you're pitching is it interesting is it different do you get what do you get how to communicate why an editor or a reader should care about this idea and that's really hard to do it's the hardest part about being a writer the more you do it the better you get at it and that's kind of was my experience. I probably sent so many pitches that were like so out of my league to write. So, you know, things I could just should not have been pitching. <laughs> but I don't regret doing that because it kind of helped me learn where, you know, how to frame something in a way that that would get would get it commissioned, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's all um, been a learning process. And like every yeah. every time you write something, it's helping you for the next right. thing. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, it's really like 
you, when you look back, you can draw all these straight lines from, oh, that editor introduced me to this person and then that happened mm -hmm. and it looks all clean. But at the time, you've no idea what is going to amount to what. And one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite sort of metaphors is uh, Neil Gaiman it, did a speech called um, Make Good Art. I think I'm just going to fact check that that is actually correct. She's such a writer. But, um, say, such, such a writer. writer. <laughs> fact checking. Yeah, okay. So so he said that the a freelance life or a life in the arts is like putting messages in bottles and sending them out to sea. And you send out, every day you get up and you do that. Like whether you're pitching or you're going to auditions or you're writing blog posts or you're reaching out to people, like whatever it is you're doing, those are all messages in bottles. And you send out mm. hundreds of thousands in in a life of doing this and you, ne you don't know which ones are going to come back, mm. but some of them will. And if you don't get up every day and do it, then you're like lessening your chances of bottles coming back to you. This is the most and beautiful. I agree with it a hundred percent. I do. Go so on, that sorry. was that was a really helpful way to think about it. Like I I I still am, but when I was like twenty two, even more so, I was just like such a hustler. Like every day, I was doing something to try and get to be more legitimate, so the whole thing would become easier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and that's that's what I think most people don't want to hear. They're like, well, how did how did you start writing for the Guardian? It's like, well. I wrote for a website that no one had ever heard of for about a year and a half. It was called Eco Salon. And I wrote about all kinds of things from like eco fashion to feminism to, you know, street art to whatever. Mm -hmm. I probably got paid like $150 a piece. And then this wow. great editor that I worked with, it was a great website, don't get me wrong, but no one had like, it wasn't like a People didn't show. People know about yeah. it. And then this great editor that I worked with there, I noticed that she was writing for the sustainable fashion section at The Guardian. And I knew we had a good relationship and I was in South Africa and I had an idea for a story there and I asked her for an introduction and she gave me an introduction to her editor at The wow. Guardian. I pitched that editor and then I started writing there. But like, it's even- It's all linked. Yeah, and even the way that I started writing for Eco Salon was another story, you know? So it's, you have to, in the beginning, I did and I think you really have to say yes to everything, even if you think it's kind of not good enough for you or you, you know, you wish you were, somewhere better you still uh, as long as it's not you know offending your integrity in some way you you yeah. have to say yes um and sometimes you know that it's not going to look how you want it to look um but you have to do it have to so do it. i don't even really know if that answers your question but um <laughs> answers it wow i just i'm gonna take a pause for a second because this interview is fantastic it's fantastic i just need a breather i also want to take this time to let you know that Blue Apron is fantastic. Our... Yeah, Blue Apron is also fantastic. So head over to blueapron.com slash two blonde spelled T-O-L and get those free three meals that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. We'd really appreciate it. And so, so will you. you. Back to the interview. I know just from reading your, um, your lovely uh, newsletter <laughs> that you are um, into meditation and yoga and running and like what are some things you do to like counteract is that the right counter word? Yeah. Act, yeah. What like the stresses of being a writer? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's you've probably gotten that impression from my newsletter because in the past year or so, that's been like a big focus of mine. Um, I think it's really easy when you're doing this kind of life to kind of get addicted to like outward achievements, and I think social media is obviously a huge part of that. And I think I definitely have had periods where like I haven't published something in a while that I'm proud of or that I think is impressive and then I just feel like okay I'm not even like a writer anymore like what am I doing you know Um, felt that yeah (laughs) like and it's crazy it's like go look at your portfolio you've been remind yourself (laughs) but it really you can really start to stake all of your worth on your external achievements as it's and I feel like it gets even worse when you're achieving you know what I mean because you get all this positive reinforcement each time Mm -hmm. and then you just want more and more of that validation Mm -hmm. like yeah I kind of realized that that was happening and realized that like even these milestones that I really wanted were happening and I just like it just was never feeling like enough and that's part of what makes you a ambitious hungry person that's like a good quality I think but I really think that you have to learn how to temper it with um, with something else. And um, to quote the great Tony Robbins, uh, <laughs> if you haven't his watched documentary his recently. documentary. Yeah. Have you watched I haven't it? watched it yet. It's so good. It's so good. Tears. Like, I was in tears most just, of it. I kept just like looking for something about him I don't like. I was like, it's too good to be true. Like, no one is this amazing. I was like, nope, he yeah, is. he is. So he he basically Netflix? says that, like success without fulfillment is like makes for a lot just makes you like a miserable person, um, and I I think like meditation and and um, you know just sort of practices that are not about achieving like finding spaces in your life to underachieve that's what I I like to do yeah that's um, beautiful is really is really helpful for me and. It was like an interesting process of finding out that I needed that, but once I did, I was like, "Oh, okay, um, this is this is really healthy." So yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I do. I, like when I say meditate, I'm not like I, I literally meditate for three and a half minutes every morning using like a recording on my phone oh, that like my you. therapist that gave me. Like so you. it's like it's so. I mean, it, it's so. It's so simple and non-committal that it's almost like you don't have an excuse not to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's how I started. Um, and then I do. I do like to do yoga at home. There's um, this style of yoga called restorative yoga or Yin yoga, and you use a lot of props and, and you just sleep. Things that like root you into the ground and like you you can't move, which is the best part about it. It's like the opposite of exercise. Mm-hmm. So I'm really I'm really into that we have to give ourselves credit though we're living in a new generation that's we've never had technology like this and so yeah. finding that balance I think we're the first ones now to kind of have to find a balance because it's yes our phones are with us 24 7 it's so true and so you and we gotta give ourselves I, credit for that I think um for those of us I mean for a lot a big chunk of our generation like traditional trappings of success like just aren't really available like home ownership and even just like a stable paycheck yeah. or like healthcare if you live in America um so i think that for for people who who are pursuing a creative or who are privileged enough to pers- to co- even contemplate pursuing a job that they like which is a privilege in and of itself they've kind of taken this tact of being like well i can't have financial stability but i can 
you know, have done three TED Talks by the time I'm 30 and like have 100,000 Instagram followers and have done, you know, so we, we, yeah. we use these, these kinds of achievements as benchmarks, which like in, is nice in some ways. It means we like are trying to make an impact on the world beyond our own comfort, but it also can just like be really exhausting. Really and I, exhausting. Yeah. So the past year for me has been a kind of process of investigating that and investigating how to do this life that I am really passionate about without being exhausted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like uh, spiritually <laughs> and yeah. you know, literally. We've oh, been yeah. going through that the last couple months of just yeah. two blondes was everything for a year and a half. And we were just like, yeah wiped out wiped out it's and like you yeah. need to balance it so with, we took a month yeah. break and it, it really mm-hmm. helps it gets you uh yeah centered again yeah and yeah. just doing and, it for fun just, yeah and just like in that if you feel like without the thing that you love to do like you are not as worthwhile then that's like something to investigate because like you are <laughs> you know if you exactly. everyone yeah. is that's just like how so that's just like a fact so that is was how I was kind of feeling mm-hmm. for a, mm-hmm. a time. And yeah, I mean, there are some weeks where I still feel like that, but at least I know now that it's like not it's You're not aware true. Of it. I don't yeah. I don't know if writing something where acting they say if you can um, do anything else, do it. And I've mm-hmm. always and like don't have <laughs> don't have a like a job on the side. Like don't think you can do something else. It has to be everything. And I've always disagreed with that. I can do many mm-hmm. things well. Most yeah. of us can, and I think we've yeah. kind of been told that we don't have a plan don't have B. a plan B. And I'm like, if you love something else, you can love them both. Like, yeah. And I don't well, know if writing's the same insane. way. Like, yeah, it's just insane. People who say that, people who <laughs> say that have like clearly have like you know people who are going to bail them out because for a lot of people that's not an option. You yeah. know, like you yeah. you have to you you have to have a plan B, and you have to be you know, responsible and like, um, I think that's the thing. I think, I think pursuing a creative life is just for people that want to do it, but for some reason aren't doing it. I think it's because they're afraid that it won't look like what they think it will look like. I totally fulfilling all the time, kind of glamorous. It probably won't. (laughs) And the fact, I mean, the fact is it won't, it Mm -hmm. definitely won't. But I think, you know, what you have to pay attention to is, are you spending, are you spending like 20% of your week or your month doing something that makes you feel excited and that makes you not think about money and makes you not think about like all the bullshit that is involved Mm -hmm. in our world. I mean, if you can say 20% of your month is that, like, that's pretty good. A lot of people who are, are like hugely successful by society's bullshit standards probably can say 0%, you know? they're like doing a job that they don't particularly like whatever so that that's you know and then the other 80 percent maybe varying degrees of enjoyment most Mm -hmm. of it not but um but I I I often think of it like that and my goal is kind of slowly over time to inch up the percentage of of time that I spend doing what I like and hopefully the amount of money that it earns me but in the beginning, so, so many wise nuggets are being said. <laughs> nuggets. I love this little all. wise nuggets. Sorry, continue. But in the beginning, the like the money part is just like not even a factor, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I, I like hearing that you were working as a waiter and like, or a host and. I've literally done like name it. a job. I've probably done it. 
Like oh. I worked in a call center. I was a PA. I was like a she cocktail a waitress for a while. Wow. Um, which I got, which I, no, I didn't get fired from that. I quit that and then wrote about it. Oh, there, um, you, there go. you go. I think this kind of goes into your Maldi Women Project where it's mm-hmm. like speaking your mind. And I think as women, we are taught not to have an opinion. And yeah. I, I think how it happened for you was you were, someone told you you were Maldi and then you had to really realize, wait, that's not a bad thing. So Yeah, I mean, I just have felt that basically since third grade. Wow. <laughs> so, what, what is your Maldi Woman project? Can you explain it a bit? Yeah. And because I think it's such a like wonderful project you're working on. Sure. Um, so it's a series of interviews with women who I just find interesting or inspiring um, and who are Maldi, which, which basically means they don't they don't really care or ascribe to the um, care about or ascribe to the sort of female the cultural no, uh, idea of female likability so they're you know whatever that looks like um they're they're sort of loud or they're they're bossy or which isn't even a thing but opinionated and i just noticed that um i just noticed that you know ha- it, it confuses people when they meet sort of a young female who maybe they assume is like mostly interested in fashion and makeup and then they start talking about politics and that mm-hmm. should not be confusing like those mm-hmm. two things can coexist and it just really bothers me that that's still <laughs> confusing to people so that's kind of where it came from um and also just being opinionated and 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 then so many times in my life expressing my opinions and then the next day almost feeling like bad about that almost like a hangover like oh I just wish I could have chill and like not I didn't say that but then at the same time like what why not you know like that's why we're here and these are these issues are what we should be talking about um so yeah I did a TED talk last year oh cheers uh, cheers virtual cheers TED talk Um, (laughs) with your fake beer how did that happen did you apply or Um, did this fall into your lap you, you can't really apply for it, I think. They don't oh, really want those. people to, like, go after it. <laughs> well, maybe some can. It's it's TEDx, so it's independently organized, so it's probably a little different, but everywhere. But, yeah, I just met someone, and I told them about this project, which at the time was just a blog post that I that I had written and gotten a nice response to, and I wanted to turn it into something. And then she's like, she, this woman who had, had herself done TED Talks and was helping organize this one just said, do you want do what do you want to say what you just said to me in a TED talk? Wow. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I said yes. Were so. you nervous? Because you're usually behind a computer screen typing. Was yeah. this like something out of your comfort zone, or you were more excited, or what were your feelings? I like public speaking. Um, I obviously like to talk. You might have noticed. <laughs> um, right. I guess so mouthy women. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. I was obviously I was nervous, but I wasn't like. It wasn't a feeling of dread, you know. Uh-huh. Um, I did learn that I did learn, which was interesting, that the way that I the way that I write isn't um, particularly conducive to to the spoken word. So the first draft of my speech was so different from the way that I ended up delivering mm-hmm. it because I had to sort of tone down, not tone it down, but just make it easier More to conversational say. than right. A that was piece. that was a that was just like a sort of technical 
curiosity that that came about in the process of doing it but no it was a really it was a great experience and um I met so many I mean the response to it the cool thing was that the response to it was so immediate and and physical like I got to talk to all these people right after I did it so usually when you write something even if it does well you know you get some emails and you get some tweets and that feels nice but this was like it was it was so cool to talk to people who were resonating with it um and I'd never really experienced that before so that was awesome was this on YouTube yeah I was, I was gonna ask how can people see yeah. it or how can people go to your blog or your mouthy women so they can go to mouthywomen.work that's the url and the TED talk is on there um and then you could also just google or you could just search YouTube probably for um mouthy women and my name there you go so we have to wrap <laughs> up unfortunately time flew um, oh, I like her. But what should I think? I think the last question it should go out on like what, either where do you see yourself in ten years, or best piece of advice you have. Ooh. Okay. Or both. Um, hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The first one is hard. I don't know. I mean, I just want to be. I don't even know what journalism is going to look like in ten years, so wow. it's like hard to answer, you know. Yeah. But I hope that I'm I'm still doing this I hope my percentage of the amount of time I spend doing this and then the, and the amount of money I earn doing it is higher than it than is. it is now great that's cool. a and I mean, goal. yeah that's really I mean and it could who knows what it's gonna look like it could honestly look like anything mm-hmm. I I wouldn't even try to guess but that's would you be in London or LA I I mean I don't know probably not LA but um but maybe I, not London <laughs> possibilities are and then I think my advice so my advice to what a, a person pursuing their their career maybe in college or creative, or, yeah college. someone yeah. that's like thinking about pursuing a career in writing yeah so I mean it's pretty simple you should organize your life as in a in such a way that allows you to write I mean whatever that whatever that looks like for you but a lot of people talk about wanting to write and I get, I mean, people ask me for advice all the time. How do I, you know, become a, a freelance writer? And, and the answer is, it's really, it's to start. And it, it's obviously more complicated than that. But I think, I think those people who want to do it but aren't doing it are more interested in the sort of output of it rather than the process of doing it. And that's such a, such a cliched thing to say, but like enjoy so the process. True. But it's really true. And, and you know, if, if, this if sitting here today the amount of success if you want to call it that that I've had if this is like the peak of what I will ever achieve like I will still continue reporting and writing because I just like doing it Mm -hmm. and and it's it's the place in the world where I feel like that's what I'm supposed to be doing and so that's what I'm supposed to be doing so you have to if you if you are lucky enough to know what that is a and be lucky enough to even have the means to contemplate doing it in some way, then you should just find a way to do it. And it's not gonna look Amen. pretty. Amen. <laughs> Ladies, I took away so much from this and like can't thank you enough. Thank you so Mostly much. Mostly it's just all ideas stolen from like smart people that are smarter <laughs> than us. Them. Well that's you're, my problem. also a really good way of speaking. I can know things but I cannot <laughs> shoot it back out and I just don't remember anything you're just so, so well spoken Rosie can't even tell you how oh, thankful thanks. I am we're proud of you 
so Thanks, proud guys. of you. I'm proud of you too. I watch <laughs> your Instagram clips all the time. Thanks for watching. Next time I'm Thank in London, you. which will probably be soon. I'll, yeah, I'll come see definitely. you. We should have a non-virtual brunch. A non-virtual yes. brunch. Yay. Thanks, okay. Rosie. Bye, Rosie. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. That's our show, and now we're saying so long. Tune in next time on Behind Two Blondes. The Behind Two Blondes podcast is brought to you by FOU Studios and recorded at Face Off Unlimited headquarters in Astoria, Queens. The show was created and written by Chase O'Donnell and Savannah Brown. This episode was produced and edited by Chase O'Donnell. Executive producers are Joe Tex, Jay Painter, and Eric Robinson. FOU Studios is a property of Face Off Unlimited, LLC. I'm Brian Walters, the senior producer here, and on behalf of everybody who worked on this show, we'd like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to catch all of our other podcasts here on the FOU Studios Podcast Network. To learn more, connect with us via social media at FOU Studios and visit us at FOUstudios.com. Boom! Boom.